0: This is Propaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Ooh, ooh. This episode of Propaganda is sponsored by She's Beautiful When She's Angry. The first documentary about the women's liberation movement, She's Beautiful When She's Angry, is a critically acclaimed film that's now available to own featuring the women who made change happen then and continue to bang the drum of equality today. Look for it on DVD, iTunes, Amazon Video, and wherever you watch movies. She's Beautiful When She's Angry.com.
1: I don't have water in my house, so like I said, that's worse than not having no power in your house.
0: That's Flint, Michigan resident Daryl Wilson talking to the Detroit Free Press this week about how he like thousands of other people in Flint are forced to wash their dishes, flush their toilets and cook their food with bottled water. Thousands and thousands of bottles of water. For almost two years, the tap water in Flint has been toxic. Flint is a blue collar town where 40% of residents are below the poverty rate. 15% of homes are boarded up and abandoned. These kinds of statistics shouldn't be relevant, but they are. Everyone should have access to clean water, regardless of how rich or poor their city is. But as the story of Flint shows, America doesn't work that way. Locals in Flint had been worried about their drinking water ever since April 2014. That's when the city decided it had to save money by switching from getting its water from Detroit's system to their own local source, the Flint River. The river is heavily polluted. Almost immediately, Flint residents began telling local leaders about foul-smelling tap water and getting weird health symptoms such as rashes and hair loss from drinking and bathing in it. General Motors stopped using Flint River water in its auto plants because the water corroded engine parts. Still, state and local politicians didn't take citizen complaints about their water seriously. A pediatrician discovered that the lead levels of kids under five in Flint were dangerously elevated. She became physically sick. But instead of listening to her, a state official called her deluded. As late as October 2015, Governor Rick Snyder's office was telling Flint residents that their water was safe to drink, that all the problems stemmed from some homes having lead pipes. It wasn't until residents filed a class-action lawsuit that finally the state took them seriously. In January of 2016, the state's chief medical officer finally told Flint residents to use only bottled water and President Obama declared a state of emergency in the city. Four months later, there's been a lot of focus on Flint nationally, but the problem still isn't fixed. You have to wonder, what role do race and class play in this disaster? Flint is about 65% people of color, and the average household income is about $25,000. How would this situation be different if it wasn't happening in Flint, but, say, in Beverly Hills? Would Beverly Hills ever have run out of money and have to switch to piping in water from a polluted source? Would their water have been polluted to begin with? There's not a lot of industrial factories in Hollywood. When residents spoke up about the problem, would politicians have listened more quickly? Would they have taken action immediately? After all, Beverly Hills residents are probably more likely to be big-money campaign donors and to have political connections than the people of Flint. is an issue of environmental justice. Environmental justice is the intersection of power or discrimination, privilege, and the environment. People of all races, income levels, genders, and abilities should have equal say in the protection of the environment and in the creation of laws or development projects that change the environment. But in reality, it's another way the world is unequal. You can see a lack of environmental justice in lots of places. In strip mining in the South, in freeway construction in urban areas, in where dams are built on indigenous land, in the placement of garbage dumps in low-income communities, in the way big farms expose migrant workers to toxic fertilizers with no protection, in the politics of which communities in California suffer the most from the drought. To frame today's episode on environmental justice, it's good to start out with a primer on exactly what the term means. Environmental news website Grist recently put together a video breaking down the term environmental justice. In just three minutes, the video does a great job explaining the complicated issue with real nuance. So we're going to share it here. If you watch the video on grist.org or on YouTube, you can see lots of cool animations. But since this is radio, you'll just have to close your eyes and use your imagination.
2: Okay, so this is a city. Here are all the people living in it, people of all different colors, ages, wealths, and incomes. Except they don't all live together in the same place. They're separated into different parts of the city by what color they are, what language they speak, and how much money they have. And those different parts of the city look quite different. The parts that are wider and wealthier tend to have green spaces, grocery stores with nutritious organic food, and of course so money to buy it, and are often far away from pollution-emitting freeways. The parts that are poorer and more diverse tend to have industrial sites, heavy-duty diesel-polluted ports and highways, and hazardous waste, all things that the city relies on to run properly, but that heavily pollute the air and water. And even if they had those grocery stores with nutritious organic food, Most residents there couldn't afford it anyway. How did this happen? Well, this segregation can be traced back to race-based zoning and housing policies, but it wasn't always as deliberate as plain old racism. Some separations can simply be traced to poor land use planning. And, as a result, these residents of the same city live very different lives. Say the city realizes it has an emissions problem. It comes up with a plan to reduce air pollution, to plant more trees to suck up the carbon, or start a cap-and-trade program. But those trees get planted in the neighborhoods that are already green, and the factories that are spewing toxins into the air just buy more carbon offsets and keep spewing their toxins. The benefits of these programs are enjoyed by the communities that are already doing just fine, and the communities that were hurting most from all that air pollution, well, they're still hurting. This isn't just an imaginary city. This is the story of real cities all across the U.S. where people might live in the very same area code, but their race, ethnicity, or wealth and income bracket causes them to experience wildly different quality of air, water, and life in fact it can even mean that they also experience different deaths that's how serious this stuff is this kind of inequity expands far beyond cities too rural areas are full of commercially valuable resources like oil and coal and they're also home to indigenous and low-income communities but when those resources are extracted those communities don't see any of the money and they end up with all the air and water contamination that's left over from the extraction And we even see this injustice on a global level, like in small island nations that are forced to directly confront the consequences of rising sea levels but haven't played any significant role in the industries that are causing climate change. These peoples are sometimes forced to flee their homes because their land is literally going underwater. But the very states that did play a hand in creating climate change don't have migration policies to accommodate them. So when we talk about environmental justice, we're talking about how we can try to break down and reimagine a system that's built up on these inequities, a system where those who are already disadvantaged because of their race and economic status are made poor because they're unable to profit from the resources that the world depends on and are made sick or worse by the environmental contamination that comes with extracting those resources. Social inequities are intimately tied to the environment. That's why social justice is an environmental issue too.
0: Thanks to Grist for letting us share their primer on environmental justice. That video was made by Daniel Penner, Eve Andrews, and Aura Bogato. While the issues around Flint's toxic water has put environmental justice on the national radar, environmental justice is an issue that affects every city and state. Where I live, in Portland, Oregon, over a thousand homes in a predominantly African-American neighborhood were torn down in the 1950s and 60s in the name of urban renewal. Many of them demolished to make way for a freeway. Now, 50 years later, the impact of that decision remains. Not only is the neighborhood still split down the middle by a giant freeway, But the air quality in the neighborhood is worse because of all the cars on that freeway. Kids born today are literally breathing in the toxic legacy of the past. Today's episode explores three stories about environmental justice. We get a look at indigenous organizing in Canada, African-American farmers in Wisconsin, and hear an interview with legendary environmental justice activist Wangari Maathai. Stay tuned. There's this photo of a protester in Ottawa, Canada, in 2012, holding up a sign with a simple, bold message. Treaty rights, not greedy whites. That protester is part of Idle No More, a grassroots movement that brings together environmental justice and Indigenous rights. Spreading across Canada, the organization was founded in 2012 by four women, three First Nations women and a non-Native ally. Their original goal was to push back against a sweeping federal bill called C-45 that weakened environmental protections and threatened native rights. Since then, thousands of people have joined in their protests. Reporter George Lavender of Making Contact Radio talked with one of Idle No More's co-founders, Sylvia McAdam. In this interview, she talks about how indigenous rights and environmental protections are intrinsically interlinked.
3: A shopping mall in Saskatoon, Canada, It's winter and the floor of the mall is crowded with hundreds of shoppers buying Christmas gifts. A group of people begin to drum. Soon, a huge circle is formed inside the shopping mall as people hold hands and dance together. Traditional round dances like this one, as well as demonstrations, teach-ins and blockades, swept across Canada in the winter of 2012. The movement became known as Idle No More and began as a protest against new laws curtailing environmental protections, but quickly grew into a national and international movement for environmental justice and indigenous rights. Chief Theresa Spence of the Adewapiskat underwent a six-week hunger strike in support of the movement's demand for a nation-to-nation dialogue between First Nations and the Canadian government.
4: We're living in the third world,
5: and this shouldn't be happening in this country. They're getting rich by our land. Everybody's using our traditional land except us and all these mining companies and other forestries and other things that been happening in our community. There's no benefit for us.
3: But at the very beginning, Idle No More was four women who resolved amongst themselves not to be silent about what they saw happening to their land and water. One of them was Sylvia McAdam.
5: My name is Sylvia McAdam. I'm from the Treaty 6 territory in what is now known as Canada. Um, I'm from the Nihio people. uh, In English we're called the Cree Cree people, but I am from the Nihio nation. I'm one of the co-founders. There's four founders of Idle No More. Idle No More means protection of indigenous sovereignty and protection of land and water. So that's our, our vision is to keep pressuring leadership not just in Canada, but also uh, globally, that the protection of our land and our waters is a very critical state. And the the way that we're extracting resources in many of the indigenous territories in Canada is detrimental to the land and to the water. And we're pushing and pressuring leadership to use, um, start moving towards using. Um, resources that are environmentally friendly. What brought me to that pivotal point was, I went back to the land, and the traditional lands of my people, and I realized from, from that point on, there was activities happening that were so devastating to the land. In my mind, when I was growing up as a child, I was thinking of going back to those freshwater streams and those forests and those pristine berry-picking lands and the medicines that were growing there. And when I went back there last year, a lot of the land was devastated. And when I tried to go back to those those lands where we had hunted and fished, Um, I found out that those were being targeted for logging and there was no forest, literally no forest. And then I I went back to those freshwater streams that had been there before, they were gone, Um, they were dried up and that scared me into action, I think. And I I was grieving and so sad that these things were gone. That brought me to that point where when Bill C-45 happened, I was like, no, I, I can't stay silent on this. Uh, we were actually going to call it silent no more, but we thought, well, it was much more than that. It was being idle, so we said we were going to be idle no more. It began as a small social media campaign armed with little more than a hashtag and a cause.
4: The Canada's idle no more has grown into a large Indigenous movement, with protests and ceremonial gatherings held almost daily.
2: In swirling snow late last month, they converged on Canada's parliament in what became the largest gathering so far in the Idle No More movement. That began in early October with just four Aboriginal women and a Twitter hashtag. And it's grown into nationwide
6: protests. My name is Audrey Redman and I'm Dakota First Nations from Standing Buffalo, Saskatchewan. To me, it's a really exciting time because I think it's a time that First Nations are coming together and we're coming around the same issues which is, a, which is the land and right now, of course, with the Bill C-45 that's going through and they're trying to push it through and I, I really don't believe that First Nations are going to um, accept any of it now. We may have looked like we've been very, very patient and we are patient people. But there is a limit to patience. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there comes a point when we have to stand up and say, you know, it's enough.
5: When people started to realize um, the far reaching effects of Bill C 45, it created a new consciousness. It created uh, a a protection towards uh, land and water. And I think. Grassroots people started to realize the kind of connection That came out of I I don't know more um, We became United we became um, how should, a united voice in protecting the land and the water and for many many grassroots people um, when they began to realize um, when they began to have more information about Bill C 45 and all those bills that were going through Parliament, they realized how terrible this bill is and what it's going to do. And I think I don't know more created, like I said, the space for them um, to tell the Canadian state that they don't have our consent to put this bill through. I don't know more. Um gives space for grassroots voice in whatever manner that it chooses to be. Given that it's peaceful, it has to be peaceful, ethical, moral, respectful. you know, those are the boundaries that we ask. and but if if you can follow those boundaries and you have a voice as a grassroots person, then
0: you, you know, I don't know more is for you. That was making contact reporter George Lavender, talking with one of the co-founders of Idle No More, Sylvia McAdam. Idle No More is hard at work today. You can learn more about the movement at idlenomore.ca. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. We have exciting news. So many of our propaganda listeners wrote in to ask how you could support the show that we created a brand new Beehive membership level, the podcast Pollinators. Join fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators. And when you do, you will receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all our podcast shows and music reviews delivered straight to your inbox. Become a podcast pollinator today at bitchmedia.org pollinators. That's bitchmedia.org pollinators. Protecting the environment is an issue for everybody. The air we breathe, the water we drink, these are issues that none of us can escape. But low-income people often bear the brunt of environmental problems. They can't afford to live in neighborhoods that have the most trees or most plentiful parks, or afford the food that's grown organically. Oftentimes, the image of the modern environmental movement isn't super diverse. It's sometimes seen as a cause led mostly by white people. In this story, reporters Kyong Jin Lee and Zoe Sullivan of Making Contact Radio narrate the story of African Americans working for environmental justice in Wisconsin, aiming to make healthy food and positive communities available
7: to everyone. What a worm worm gas is made out of. Poop. That's the scoop.
8: (laughs) If you close your eyes and picture an American farmer, what color is their skin? How about a city dweller? If the media and our popular culture are any guide, that farmer is probably white, and the urban person may be black. It's ironic, because until the Great Migration in the first half of the 20th century, Most African-Americans lived their entire lives on farms. But when millions of Blacks headed north, they settled in the cities, where there was work to be found. In largely rural Wisconsin, the state's Department of Agriculture says, out of more than 73,000 farms in operation, only 63 are owned by African-Americans. But a few of those remaining Black farmers are trying to reconnect the Black community with their not-so-distant past and help improve the community's health in the process. From Madison, Zoe Sullivan has the story.
7: Hello. Hey, how you doing? Welcome, (laughs) good, how are you doing? I'm all right.
8: We're at the Boys and
4: Girls Club on Madison's South Side, a neighborhood with large African-American and Latino populations. Robert Pierce is a Madison native. He's one of only a handful of black farmers in the state. Pierce is tall and barrel-chested. He has a good-natured laugh, but he's serious about his passion for organic farming and community empowerment. Pierce is working with the Boys and Girls Club to teach farming practices to local youth of
7: color. You know, we're not only teaching people how to, how to grow food, teaching them how to cook, how to prepare, because it's not just good enough to know how to eat it, you gotta learn how to cook it right. You know, because the bottom line is if you eat good from the beginning, down the road, it would be better for you in the end here that you may not suffer all the other you know, ailments of diabetes and heart attacks and heart failures and all these other things if you eat right from the beginning. So we need to start teaching kids how to eat right from the beginning, you know. My thing is, you can't teach an old dog no tricks. So get to the puppies. You know, teach the puppies.
4: Pierce's own family has been in Madison since the 1930s, and helped establish one of the city's prominent black churches. Even in the city, though, Pierce was drawn to the land.
7: We always put gardens in, you know, we always had big, huge gardens. My grandmother was that way. We had had these huge gardens. And it was like a time when she would, you know, tell us everything about the families and stuff like that. So it was always that time of uh, hanging out in the garden with Grandma and so you could learn more about the family.
4: The farmers' markets Pierce runs are important nexuses for the community. Pierce's daughter Shelley was running an early spring market on the Park Street thoroughfare.
0: This community over here, because it's known as a food desert. All of our markets are placed in food deserts where there's a lot of like, gas stations, but there's not actual like good local, good food that you can get, and um, you know, and that pays so much for it. Pierce
4: explains that area residents find more at the market than just good food.
0: They usually sometimes come and sit for a very long time <laughs> and just chit chat with us which is we, we appreciate that at, you know at all given times, but um, they, we see that they kind of lights their day up, especially when it gets warm, that they can just walk out, sit, eat an apple, eat a, you know eat some watermelon right here with us and sometimes we have you know music. And so it's kind of like a way for them to kind of get out and not have to deal with whatever they're going through at home.
4: Wisconsin has one of the highest incarceration rates of African Americans in the country. Professor Pam Oliver of the University of Wisconsin-Madison reported 47 percent of African-American males in Wisconsin between the ages of 25 and 29 were either in prison or on parole in 2006. A Wisconsin Office of Justice Assistance study showed African-Americans were arrested at roughly 11 times the rate of whites for violent crimes in 2008. In this context, Pierce's work takes on greater significance. He's been running a farmers' market on the south side of Madison for eight years. He trains about a dozen youth each year and serves almost a hundred people daily in each of his five markets. In spite of his efforts to promote self-sufficiency and
7: positive living, Pierce has been challenged. And so, uh, I get here, and the guy, uh, the building's surrounded, and they go, well, "You got two? Uh, you have two two uh, offices in there?" I say, yeah. And I said, well, we want to look at him. I said, for what? He says, "Uh, we believe you're dealing drugs. And I said, so, this is uh, 2010. We have a black president, and I just had dinner with Michael Pollan, and I'm a drug dealer. Oh, okay. So they concluded that I wasn't a drug dealer by the time they were finished, and all I had was a bunch of vegetables.
4: Pierce says he hasn't been bothered since, but it wasn't the first time something like this happened. Even if he's not being harassed, though, others are. Will Allen, another black farmer in Milwaukee, founded Growing Power, a national food justice organization that's become a model for urban agriculture. Like Pierce, he started in a low-income African-American community plagued with problems. Here, interns at Growing Power headquarters in Milwaukee are throwing trays of shoots into a compost bin. On the day I visited, Alan is out at another site, but there's plenty of activity going on. Javier Vasquez is an intern at Growing Power.
1: These are pea shoots, Uh and the other ones are sunflower sprouts, and we divide them up because of the rate of decomposition. So, and if you want to even smell the soil and check what is ready and what is not, and if you smell like that manure y smell to it, it means it's not ready, but someone pulled it anyways. No, they're bad. But we sell the pea shoots and uh, the sunflower sprouts and this is the byproduct. Instead of you know throwing it away or putting in compost pile, we actually reuse it and the soil is even more fertile than it was before.
4: Vasquez's family owns a 40-acre farm not far from Milwaukee. The urban agriculture experience is a way for him to learn new techniques. He's not the only one who's come for this reason. On the day of my visit, A group of fellows from Kenya and Uganda are wrapping up an educational stay with growing power. Paris Mogo is an agricultural extension officer in Nairobi. She supports farmers as they learn and adopt new methods. We met in one of the greenhouses, where a hydroponic system is in place. I asked Mogo if what she's learned will be useful in Kenya.
1: Very useful, because I only need to adapt the same system into our condition. We may not be able to do it in the sophisticated way it's done, but the principles behind it can be applied in our environment, yes. I intend to start farming from my household. I've seen you don't require land; you only require space to grow food. On top of the concrete, you can grow food in trays and harvest the food from your kitchen, it can be done it will be done. I want to start from my house, as I extend to other farmers.
4: Since the Back to the Land movement in the 60s and 70s, growing one's own food has become popular in cities. Pierce and Allen's work building social equity through a core state industry, farming, is modeling a more sustainable lifestyle for urban dwellers. They're extending the health and self-sufficiency of urban populations of color, who have less access to resources than the flower children did. For Making Contact, this is Zoe Sullivan.
0: That was Kyung Jin Lee and Zoe Sullivan of Making Contact. If you haven't heard Making Contact, I recommend you check them out. They're an independent nonprofit that's committed to investigative journalism and radio. They do all sorts of interesting audio journalism projects. I listen to their stories personally all the time at radioproject.org. Wangari Maathai was herself a force of nature. Born in 1940 in rural Kenya, she became an advocate for environmental protection, democracy, and women's rights. Her work mattered so much that in 2004, she became the first African woman to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. She passed on in 2011 from ovarian cancer, but her words and work still resonate today. Luckily, we're able to hear from Wangari in her own words. In 2009, Francesca Rihanna and Bill Bowie of Sea Change Radio got the chance to talk with Wangari Maathai when she was on tour in the United States. Now we get to listen to their interview and think about how
6: Wangari can continue to inspire. In her native Kenya, Wangari Maathai saw that deforestation was devastating the environment. Good arable land was eroding, streams were getting polluted or drying up, and women had to go further to find ever scarcer firewood. So in 1977, she founded the Grassroots Greenbelt Movement. Over the past 32 years, it's planted 35 million trees, bringing back whole ecosystems with it and revitalizing villages. The program has been carried out mainly by the women in those villages. By hiring them to plant the trees, it gave them the means to care for their children and protect their environment. The corrupt regime of Daniel Arap Moy sought to stop Wangari Maathai, arresting her numerous times and even jailing her. In 1991, she was beaten while planting trees on public lands and suffered a head injury. But she fought on and earned world acclaim for her actions and her courage. In 2004, Matai became the first African woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize for her contribution to sustainable development, democracy, and peace. Sea Change co-host Bill Bowie and I sat down for an intimate chat with Wangari Matai at the Marlborough College Graduate School, where Bill teaches. You have said that the planting of trees is the planting of ideas what ideas are you trying to seed when you plant trees?
1: Uh, some of the major ideas that we have been trying to share for the last 30 years or so, is to uh, encourage all of us, the human species, to understand and to appreciate that we are part of nature, that we are not separate from it, and that we, when we destroy uh, nature, we are in many ways undermining our own capacity to survive. And this is very important because so many of us think of nature as something to exploit, as if we can survive without it. So this is one of the major ideas. And we then push it very far and get to the governance issues and say that it is very important for governments, for those who are in charge of uh, our politics and our economics to appreciate that we needed to have political and economic systems that protect the environment because a clean and healthy environment ensures that we too would be healthy and the final linkage that we uh, bring here is the idea of that if we do not manage our resources in a responsible way in an accountable way if we do not share these resources in a, in a more equitable and just ways sooner or later we get ourselves into conflict with those who have been marginalized or excluded or deliberately made so poor that they begin to destroy the very environment that we all rely on. And therefore, it's very important to see the linkage between the way we manage our resources, the way we govern ourselves, and the way we link that with the possibility of living in peace or in conflict with each other and our neighbors.
6: Now, when you did receive the Nobel Peace Prize, and I think that this was the first time, Ongari Matai, that it was awarded that the connection was made between peace and the environment. You've just pointed to one of those, that is people who are impoverished get into conflict with each other. I think we're seeing that in Darfur. I wonder if you could make the connection between that peace of the environment, and the kind of democratic impulse that you are also trying to nurture through the programs that you do.
1: Yeah, well, well see, um, we were very honored to have been identified by the Norwegian Nobel Committee and for our work, uh, which we had been doing and trying to bring out these issues. But, you know, until the Norwegian Nobel Committee discovered us, We were very much in a lonely corner. We were struggling with a very dictatorial system, uh, a system that did not respect human rights, a system that was exploiting the diversity that was characteristic of our community and we know is characteristic of many societies uh, in the world. And it was a system that was not inclusive. And and we recognized that without all these aspects of governance, we end up in a conflict. And it is a conflict over things like water, like land, like grazing areas. Uh, And so we, we recognized that there is a very close linkage between these issues and conflict. And we also observed that especially in Africa, there were so many conflicts and when you looked at them and got below the superficial uh, complaints of ethnicity or or religion, it was uh, always a conflict over competition, over resources.
6: One of the reasons that you started the Green Belt Movement was because of the deforestation that had happened, and uh, that deforestation was was largely a result of the kind of governance or um, economic imperialism that had been seeded by the colonialism. In what ways was the Green Belt Movement a
1: response to that kind of imperialistic governance? Uh, Yes, and as you said, that imperialistic government uh, during the colonial period was adopted by our post-colonial administrators uh, who did not appreciate the fact that the colonial administration was destroying the environment, was destroying the forests, was um, opening up land that should not have been opened up for agriculture and human settlements, and what we, we, were, uh, we tried to do was to raise our voices against this. And and the biggest disappointment, disappointment for me personally is that one would have expected that once we became independent and once we began to manage our own resources and our own affairs, we would be more responsible and we would be more accountable and we would... Be more concerned about the the welfare of the people, but those who assumed the leadership really forgot all the commitments they had promised the people, and as the people looked up to them, they just went on on with a lot of greed, a lot of selfishness, a lot of um, dictatorial tendencies, and eventually we found ourselves not moving in the direction that we had hoped when we got independence. And eventually we realized that it doesn't matter. Most people, once they are in power, they need to be regulated, they need to be controlled, they need institutions that will make sure that they do not exploit these resources at the expense of the common good. And that's these are some of the issues that we have been trying to pass all these years.
6: Wangari Matai, You have talked about how Africa is rich, really truly rich in resources, and yet the people are so poor. The question of development here looms. China and India are developing in ways that are profoundly unsustainable, following the example of, of the U.S. and the West. How do you see Africa being able to develop to counter that poverty in a way that is sustainable?
1: Well, as you probably know, I am here in the United States of America uh, and I'm here to launch a book that is actually already in in the shelves, Challenge for Africa. And in that book, I'm trying to reflect on my experiences of 30 years on trying to promote sustainable development. And what I have discovered is that it is not easy to promote sustainable development, because quite often people see development as a way of improving quality of life, creating wealth, and that is very attractive to citizens. And as we do so, quite often we sacrifice the environment. We pollute. For example, these days we are very aware that when we use fossil fuels, we are pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We are beginning to influence the increase of temperature, and we are beginning to be told that we are going to have problems in the future due to global warming. But even for countries like India and uh, China, it's very difficult to run away from the uh, model that we have adopted from the industrialized countries of the West and Japan because uh, development at that time was done with fossil fuels as the driving force, as the driving source of energy. And now the problem we have is many people say, shall we develop or shall we protect the environment? And the message surely must be, we must find a balance between improving our quality of life but at the same time not undermining the environment and therefore the capacity of our species and other forms of life to continue. That can be controlled by, first of all, we are all talking about we can invest in new and renewable sources of energy that are low in carbon, solar, wind, hydropower. These are sources of energy that can help us to develop without sacrificing the environment. And it's also very important for us to, to recognize that even if you are in China, or in India, or in the United States of America, and you feel that you are very far say from a forest that is being logged in the Congo Basin, or in the Amazon, or in Southeast Asia, you are not very far, I can tell you. With respect to the environment, and sustainable livelihoods, and our capacity to continue with our way of life as we know it on this planet, we are indeed a village. And what is happening in far away places in Africa that is undermining the environment, for example, deforestation by companies that mostly come from China, from India, from other developed uh, countries like Europe, Eventually, the damage that is being done down there will catch up with you wherever you are. Because we have become very interconnected, and especially when it comes to climate change, it's not going to look at the boundaries and say that it will only affect the people who have contributed to the greenhouse gases. It will affect all of us. When the seas rise, they will rise everywhere. When fresh water declines, it will decline everywhere. When food crops fail, they will fail in many parts of the world. So it is very, very important that all of us understand this concept of sustainability for lack of a better word. What we want to say is that we must develop, we must improve our quality of life, yes, but we must not do it at the expense of our environment and our ability to survive in this environment.
0: When I think about the environment, I often get cynical. The world is getting warmer. The sea levels are rising. We are in the middle of a great extinction, with species dying off every day. Maybe the human race won't even be around in another 200 years, because we'll drive ourselves out of existence. To me, it feels very grim. That's why I'm bolstered by the people who haven't given up hope, not by a long shot. The activists of Idle No More, the farmers in Wisconsin, people like Wangari Maathai, and the residents of Flint who pushed for clean water, They all believe that a better, healthier world is possible, and that we should all have access to a better environment, even if we're not rich. Your ability to breathe clean air and drink clean water and be around trees shouldn't depend on your zip code or your income. We know that we can't keep operating how we've been operating. People like these activists provide a way forward, and that is rare and wonderful. You've been listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. This episode of Propaganda is sponsored by She's Beautiful When She's Angry. The first documentary about the women's liberation movement, She's Beautiful When She's Angry, is a critically acclaimed film that's now available to own. Featuring the women who made change happen then and continue to bang the drum of equality today. Look for it on DVD, iTunes, Amazon Video, and wherever you watch movies. She'sBeautifulWhenShe'sAngry.com We have exciting news. So many of our propaganda listeners wrote in to ask how you could support the show that we created a brand new Beehive membership level, the Podcast Pollinators. Join fellow listeners as a member of the Podcast Pollinators, and when you do, you will receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all our podcast shows and music reviews delivered straight to your inbox. Become a podcast pollinator today at bitchmedia.org pollinators. That's bitchmedia.org pollinators. Popaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening.